there are these obstructions or challenges to that experience of feeling whole and free. You know, even those things, those challenges, those obstructions, those veils, that maya, whatever we want to call it, are um, access points or doorways in towards freedom. Hello, yogis, and thank you for tuning in to Dharma Talk. I'm your host, Henry Winslow, and this is episode number 71. I apologize for the nasal factor in my voice going on right now. I'm on the back half of a little head cold, but rest assured, the interview was recorded in advance, so it's just for this little opening segment. Before we talk about this week's conversation, first, I want to make a big shout out and give my thanks to Luis Fernando Goncalves in Brazil for making a recurring donation to Dharma Talk. Don't ask me how he did it. I don't know how you do that, but it is amazing. And Luis, thank you so much. You really have my utmost gratitude for your support. Thank you. Now, this week on the podcast, I brought on a clinical psychologist, osteopath, and somatic movement therapist by the name of Dr. Scott Lyons. This guy really knows what he's talking about when it comes to physical embodiment, human development, and healing and transformation. He's got a private practice where he treats patients, and he's also co-created something called Embodied Flow, which is a school of yoga and therapy. In this conversation, we talk about agency, embodiment, and deriving meaning from life as components of our holistic health. I ask him about reconciling physical embodiment and somatics with non-dual philosophy or unity consciousness. He shares a bit about finding ease, flow, and fluidity, even through our hardships by constructing uh, something that he calls our map, constructing one's own map through internal experience. He talks about stress responses and how we can use them as gateways into awakening. And he leaves us with four categories of what can either become connection or separation, and how a missing link in those four categories can lead to isolation and depression. All of that is coming up very soon. Please just stay tuned through these announcements, and we'll dive into my interview with Dr. Scott Lyons. Hey, yogis, I've got a whole lineup of upcoming events, and guess what? You're invited. Next week on Wednesday, August 14th, I'm teaching a Rocket Yoga Ashtanga-inspired masterclass at Pure Yoga West. It's free if you're a Pure Yoga member and $25 for non-members. So please come on out to that, 6.30 p.m. On Saturday, August 17th, I'm hosting my anniversary yoga and pizza party. This is happening at Lighthouse Yoga School on Saturday night, 5 to 8.30 p.m. And we're going to have a yoga class, of course, followed by a party with Screamers Pizzeria, Koku ice cream, Keats Co. plant bites, and gifts, surprises, raffle prizes from all of those brands, and a couple more, Future Kind and Ideal Raw. Sign up for that by August 10th to get the early bird pricing, and know that 25% of the proceeds from this event, tickets and raffles, all of that goes toward Woodstock Farm Sanctuary in upstate New York to support their efforts to provide love and care to animals rescued from industrial slaughter. After that, I've also got a handstand workshop right around the corner at Lighthouse Yoga School and travel dates set for Texas, I'll be in Dallas and Austin, and Richmond, Virginia, my hometown. 
So you can get the details for all of these events I've mentioned and more at henrywins.com events. Go there and sign up. What's your purpose? What's your vision? What mark will you leave on this planet long after you're gone? I'm Henry Winslow, and you're listening to Dharma Talk, the only podcast where I interview inspirational yogis on how they're changing the world in their own unique ways. Whether you're still searching for your purpose or already walking the path, I hope these stories get you excited to live your dharma. Hello, Dharma Talk community, and welcome back to another episode. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Scott Lyons. Scott is dedicated to teaching embodiment as a way of exploring human development, healing, and transformation. Scott is the co-creator of Embodied Flow, a school of yoga and therapy, and developer of Somatic Stress Release, a process of restoring our biological adaptation system. Scott is also the director of the Embodied Consciousness Immersion, as well as the Mind-Body Therapy Training Program and the Diamante Vita Holistic Retreat Center. Scott teaches internationally and has a private practice integrating his background as a clinical psychologist, osteopath, and somatic movement therapist. Scott, it's my pleasure to have you on here today. I'm very excited to talk to you about some things that you're clearly far more of an expert in. So thank you for coming on the show. How My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. Before we get into um, many of these exciting topics, I always like to start with the same opening question. So that question is this, what does the word Dharma mean to you? And what is your Dharma as you understand it today? Sure. It's a great question. Um, and one that I, I've actually been exploring for certainly the last couple of years. And, uh, you know, without making Dharma too formulaic, I, I really have identified some sort of key features that have been instrumental in my experience of Dharma and then working with other individuals to, to have an embodied experience of what their path or directionality or sense of meaning and purpose is. And I might you know, to start there and then kind of work my way backwards with the key components. And, and to say that, you know, one of the elements for me of Dharma is that there's a sense of meaning and purpose. And, and in that, um, you know, what we've identified certainly from social science research is that when we experience meaning and purpose, that we, ex- that it is the pillars of well-being. And so you know, my, my exploration with Dharma is a little bit from that social science kind of research perspective of going, okay, what are the components? Like if you look at a pillar uh, and a building, there are ingredients to that, that, that construct that there's cement, there's water, there's whatever other, you know, base materials there might be to create that uh, pillar. And so one of the things one of the things that I've really identified is that in order to have a sense of directionality uh, and meaning making to derive meaning from things, we have to be able to experience our own sense of power and choice. And uh, the word for that is agency. 
So we, in, in being able to have a sense of agency, and I'll define that in just a moment, and in and, and being able to experience choice making, we can identify directionality and have an indirectionality. We have a sense of more, I wouldn't just say free will, but capacity to move with things as opposed to just being a passive agent. So agency is also referring to a sense of power, active agency or active capacity. And more specifically, agency is referring to our capacity to recognize we have choices so that we're not just a, a leaf blowing in the wind in life. And then it's the, you know, it's our ability to register, okay, what choices do we have in this lifetime? If I'm not, if I actually have choice making capacity, what choices are there? What are my options? How might I see a diversity of, of ways to engage in life? And then the, the third component of agency that we can identify is um, the ability to actualize those choices that we see or can start to identify, excuse me, identify. And um, so in that, those three elements make up this sense of experiencing how we are empowered in our life to engage, to surf the waves of, of life and reality, as opposed to just being hit by the waves of it, life. And there's, you know, working our way backwards, there's, there's one more component, uh, which is that in order to recognize we have choice, uh, and the choices we have, we have to be able to recognize or experience ourself. And so this is where we dive into more embodiment and the components, and this can be a longer discussion if we want, but the components that make up embodiment, how do we experience ourself? How do we identify even sensation uh, of, of, of that we're alive, that our tissues, that our cells are living elements that are, are not just a machine. And, you know, an example might be the opposite of that, which is more like a dissociation where it's a disconnection from ourself. Like if you um, kind of hold tight your limb for a good amount of time and, and sort of cut off the circulation, there's a way in which you're cutting and you, you also be cutting off nerve impulse and sensation where there's almost like a dissociation of that limb from the rest of your body. And when, when you don't have that sense of that's part of you, you don't get to go into then having choice or identifying choices with that because it's not even on the radar that you have that part of yourself or any part of yourself for that matter. So we can identify embodiment as a uh, felt experience of every aspect of oneself that then leads to the capacity to recognize, okay, here I am. And that when I experience all that I am and where I am, and we can talk about that in terms of interoreception, proprioception, uh, and exteroreception about, you know, taking in information in the environment. Uh, and, and being able to start to identify choices and making choices and actioning choice, which leads me towards a sense of being able to derive 
meaning from how I'm engaging in life, which I did, you know, which is part of, uh, again, a sense of well-being or dharma mm-hmm. is that directionality, that that process of deriving meaning and an unfolding emergent experience of life. Ah. Well, let me take a moment to <laughs> unpack a little bit of that, and maybe we can dive into some of the, sure. the subtler points that you touched on. First of all, I have to say that um, something that doesn't often come up in this podcast that you said right away is that finding a sense of meaning or purpose can actually be considered a, a pillar of our health and well-being, mm-hmm. and yeah. that totally resonates with me. I think it is so important to feel that what you're doing is is important you know, in, in a yeah. way. And that gives you a sense of fulfillment, which is a part mm-hmm. of health. Mm-hmm. And then the agency piece, you know, we recognizing where we fit into the flow of the universe versus um, directing our, our role in the flow of the universe is, is mm-hmm. tricky and something that comes up a lot in yoga discussions, I find. So maybe that's something we can talk about. But before before that, the the piece that really stuck out to me that I want to talk about is uh, this idea of embodiment, mm-hmm. finding the sensation that we are alive in our physical form. Mm-hmm. Now, how do we reconcile that, this idea that we need to be in our bodies, we need to be grounded in our physical um, sensations with the pervasive uh, understanding and concept in yoga of ego dissolution and um, and connecting to the unity of all. Yeah. Where do, you, where do you fall on that? How do you reconcile that? Oh my gosh, what a fun, tricky question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I think, you know, uh, I'm not a yoga historian in the sense that where I get to be around so many in my life. Um, but, you know, one of the things when I was brought into the world and and it felt like a a bringing into the world of a non-dual tantric philosophy or um, that it it began to really resonate deeply with my experience of and my history in in the study of somatics. Um, Somatics, soma meaning body and, and the idea of somatics is the, the, the enlivened experience that is, that we both experience in our body, but also that um, that is derived from the body. Um, and I can break that down in a little bit. But uh, you know, one of the 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 things when we as we get back to the yoga question is, um, I here's here's a way that I I might say it is one of the frameworks that we could say is we arrive into this world in this perfection that we're not, we're not arriving into uh, in the world with a deficit that we all are already whole. And there are simply obstructions or things that are challenging that get in our way of experiencing that. And that wholeness is our embodied state. It's, it is that ultimate uh, liberated state in which we are fully experiencing ourself, which is the, you know, the, then the capacity or the allowance to feel all that we are outside of ourself. 
which, you know, even in that kind of language, it's dualistic, but, you know, its intention is to say that all of us, all that we are is nature. And that when we experience our unique sort of um, droplet of water, that is ourself, we can experience ourselves in this vast ocean. Uh -huh. And so, you know, and, and that's not the only way towards embodiment. Sometimes it's in feeling the vast ocean that gives us the support to identify and articulate our unique uh, presence within that. And, and so it's not mutually exclusive to experience the depth of who you are and the depth of all that we are. In fact, yeah. they are the same. They are just different uh, maps in towards the same wholeness that eventually you get to. That's beautifully put. And if I can try to rearticulate it back to you <laughs> in other words, it sure. sounds like you're saying... Um, that somatics in a, in a way is rooted in our physicality, but it's also using the, the body as a gateway into something more deeply profound. Yeah. I mean, simply put it, the, our body or us is the place in which we have experience. When mm -hmm. you get pinched, where do you experience that sensation? It's in the body. It's it's in the you know. In the, Judith Blackstone talks about the vehicle. The body is the vehicle for awakening, and and you know, vehicle can sometimes be a very mechanical concept. But what's really identified here is more that it's a you know, this vessel of us is the place in which we experience all that we are, and and the ways in which we ex get to experience all that we are is to also experience our, our individual nature. And there are many things that can get in the way of experiencing our individual nature. And, you know, something, um, you know, even if we look at stress, for example, when, when there is uh, a constant stream of st stimulus that it becomes overwhelming, there is a natural process of desensitization. You know, the muscles contract, there's a limitation of circulation, there's a limitation in nerve impulse, there, you know, et cetera. And, um, and there, that becomes a lack of reception of, of all of that is happening within us and which deeply affects how we experience the environment. So something like, you know, if there's an injury of sorts and there's a, a, a limitation in, let's say, proprioception, which helps us identify, for example, where we are in space, which also gives us a sense of space. So, you know, which is our environment. So if, there, if there's a skew or a challenge towards that receiving where we simply are in space, it also affects our perception of the space itself. Our environment so that another way of saying that is as we heal let's say that injury and we have more access to our sense of where we are where our limb is per se in space we also have a less skewed experience of the environment or the space itself mm -hmm. so our um 
our mind, our vehicle, all of these things are filters through which that we experience our external reality. And mm-hmm. um, to that end, I'm interested to know about what is uh, what has contributed to your personal filter and, and <laughs> sense of perception. So, you know, not many yoga teachers or even yoga therapists have yeah. the kind of clinical background that you do. Yeah. How did you find your way into, you know, your current, um, your current path mm-hmm. and what was it like to move from clinical psychology and, um, and your previous work into this more, uh, more specific type of therapy? Sure. Well, I, I was lucky enough to be introduced to yoga when I was maybe 10. So it, it actually, in some ways, was a framework that I, I always had, or I would say at that point, because it was more asana-based, that it was a container for um, exploration. It has always been, an, and a support when I had a, a dance career. Um but you know, since I was a kid, I there were things that I had sensitive experiences to um, that were, you know, um, that I would now say are more in line with a lot of what people experience, like these moments of awe and awakening that we experience in yoga practices or in, in yoga or somatics. And I I had quite a few of them when I was younger uh, and they felt unexplainable at the time. And in fact, they were unexplainable. And when I would ask my parents about them or my Mm -hmm. parents' friends, they were, um, they were dismissed as a very active imagination. Right. So things, you know, just to be more specific, like subtle body experiences, um, that were sort of dismissed or energetic experiences that were more dismissed um, in, in a kind way, but still dismissed. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I uh, had a deep desire for understanding and which led me uh, on a path of, of deeply investing myself into the sciences. So, um, you know, I was, for a long time, very clear. It was very clear that I was going to be a biochemist, uh, and then, you know, and, and became very interested in, in health sciences, uh, nutrition, uh, physical therapy, occupational therapy, neurodevelopmental therapy, all of what I've gotten opportunity to study, and uh, it never felt like it. Each of those pieces was very helpful, but it never felt like it was the whole, the whole uh, picture, like that it filled in and clarified all these questions that I had. And so I, I just kept studying. <laughs> so I became a clinical psychologist. I uh, became an osteopath. I studied physics um, and et cetera. And uh, each of, again, each of these felt like it, it offered sort of its own map. But it wasn't the the sort of larger meta map that I was looking for. And um, I think that it wasn't until maybe more recently, a couple of years ago, where I realized that I was chasing maps. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when I was introduced again to non-dual tantric philosophy and the, the, the stunning map 
that is presented there, uh, it, it felt like um, I finally saw a map in which all of these elements of science that I had studied, uh, and I include somatics in that, finally felt like it had a context or a container. And so that was a really beautiful experience. And, um, you know, again, it wasn't until recently where I was talking with a lot of my colleagues that I, I realized that, you know, I, I'd heard the concept that the map is not the terrain for a long time. But I, I think in my own desire to really find the map and build the map towards, you know, what we might call awakening or enlightenment or just this total path of liberation, uh, I, I missed the opportunity to see the importance of that, that, that the maps are, you should be unique and individual and, you know, and, and custom built, so to speak. And which um, is, and, and that the investigation of, of our own individual map that we're creating is our Dharmic path. So to me, you know, it, it's been, a road of trying to create maps and now really just living in the terrain of those maps without being attached to those maps anymore. Hmm. And if we each have our own customized, personalized map mm -hmm. that we're working on charting the course for, mm -hmm. where, where is that map meant to lead us? That's a great question. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm happy to say I don't know because mm -hmm. I, I, I have, you know, what I would say is I think that, that there are certain uh, symptoms of being on, you know, that word can be negatively associated, but there are symptoms of sort of being on l the path or, or starting to live through that map. But in terms of where that map leads each of us, I have no idea. And that's kind of the beauty of it mm -hmm. is I think that is, that is the mysterious or the mystery that even Einstein was referring to about the importance of just standing in the awe of, of in the in the mysterious, as opposed to trying to uh, have all the answers. Yes, <laughs> which is yes. you know you in the in the beginning of the podcast you called me an expert, which is a little bit of a word that at this point in my life I I get um, a little nauseous <laughs> around. Because it, it's it's taken a, a significant amount of effort to actually divorce myself of needing to be an expert, and uh -huh. it's trust me, it's still it's going to be a lifelong process. But you know, with expertise can sometimes come the idea that you are the constructor and the absolute knower of maps, and I think at one point that's what I desired is to really be able to understand and help people construct their maps as opposed to really co-facilitate with them the development and the construction of their maps, perhaps using a multitude of maps, uh, you know, that there are a lot of ways in towards this process of feeling more ease, more flow, more liberation, less um, suffering. And so, you know, you asked me, where do these maps lead? I, I don't know in particular where each map will lead, but I know, you know the symptomology that we're on the way is that there's just a, a deep experience of, of less 
tightness, of more ease, of more fluidity, uh, even in the hardships, you know, even in, in deep despair, there's a way in which even the despair feels like it moves as opposed to stagnated water. Right, right. Well, this this idea of the expert or expertise is certainly a paradox because you find that when you speak to people who have really invested much of their time and energy into exploring a field or a passion of their choice mm-hmm. that generally those are the people who have opened their eyes to how much they don't know. <laughs> and the people who aren't too familiar or aren't too exposed tend to um, overestimate their knowledge. And it's kind of like a, a converse phenomenon. Mm-hmm. But um, to your to your point about this fluidity in even the moments of struggle and despair, is yeah. that what you're referring to when you talk about uh, our biological adaptation system? Yeah, it really is. I mean, that's certainly a deep component of it. You know, one of the um, misconceptions of stress is that it's just something that happens to us. Where, again, even in the language of that or in the sort of philosophy of that, it takes away our agency. And stressors are simply anything that's asking for a dynamic response or a response in us, change, whatever it is. And, you know, our our stress response system is our basic biological adaptation system. It is the way in which we engage with stimulus in order to address it and, if needed, make changes. And, um, you know, the... The, the ways in which there are blocks or strains towards that process, which is meant to be in movement, uh, creates the stagnation, the, uh, the, the symptomology that, we, that is associated with stress. So like the, whether it's autoimmune disease or you know, the inability to sleep, weight change, all of those things is more suggestive not of the stress, but that our basic biological adaptation system is being strained or challenged or that we're not inviting or allowing it to process or metabolize through. Our, you know, if we think of a wave in an ocean, if, we, if the wave has movement and we just st- like freeze it with, I don't know, liquid nitrogen, there's a way in which it gets stuck. And it's the same thing in our response system so we are when our responsive system which is like the ocean is moving towards action and then deaction or deactivation and at some point we freeze it or it doesn't get to be expressed or mobilized then that's where it becomes it's in it's where that response system is frozen is actually where we start to get more dysregulation and challenge and the things that are more associated with stress in pop psychology. Mm -hmm. I see. So it, it, who would you say that, um, embodied flow or, or somatic stress release is really geared toward? Is this a, a type of practice that would appeal to, the, the average yoga practitioner, a, a spiritual seeker, a, yeah. a physical mover, or is it more geared toward someone who is experiencing something that feels 
or experiences as a blockage? Well, you know, uh, my fantasy is that it's available and, and accessible to everyone, but um, I, <laughs> that doesn't mean it's for everyone. Because um, I think we, again, we all have our own sort of ways in. But, you know, typically those who are coming towards to the embodied flow trainings are those who have a relationship already with themselves in terms of a sensitivity, a relationship towards the communication of their body, the, 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 the sense of, oh, I'm not just a something that's shaping shape you know, in asana, but that I have this internal life that's being lived out through a process of, of uh, asana, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, there's a way in which there's also already an affinity towards nature, like that there's a way in which there's a desire or there's already a relationship in which that the concept of separation has already begun to, or desires to be dissolved. So, you know, in this, in this way of, of that we're really saying, we come in already whole, as opposed to we're trying to find the pieces that are somehow, uh, n- that will somehow complete us. That's, that's not our, our philosophical background, but that we're, tr- we're trying to, uh, identify what's already feeling in its our wholeness and then to to also identify the places where there are these obstructions or challenges to that experience of feeling whole and free and mm-hmm. and you know even those things those challenges those obstructions those veils that maya whatever we want to call it are um, access points or doorways in towards freedom. And, you know, when we talk about Dharma again, it, it, it can be a really beautiful way of saying, oh, this challenge that sort of created less uh, experience or less freedom in, for yourself is also part of your Dharma. It, it can be the doorway in the learning process, the, the post-traumatic growth towards feeling more liberation. Right, right. That is a a perfect segue for (laughs) a question that I wanted to ask you, which is how have you used these practices yourself to get through some sort of thing that an experience that might have come across as a struggle at first? How how have you used embodied flow or what you're teaching in in other facets to move through that and see it differently? Well, I I think both Tara Jadel and I, who co-created Embodied Flow, um, are really open that like we weren't perfect by any means uh, going into this and that the process of developing and the continual process of developing embodied flow is like we are in constant evolution ourselves, which is, you know, it's a way of also recognizing we're not on some pedestal where we're co-journeying this. And, and I, so I appreciate that question a lot um, in, in the sense that, you know, Tar and I love to joke that, oh, well, one of the things we recognize is we're both less assholes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, is, is, is playful. And I actually really, you know, the subject matter 
sometimes can be so um, serious. And I, I appreciate the playfulness that we both and, and that the, our community brings into this process because it, you know, play and creativity are, are make it easier to access the things that have um, sort of been kept underneath our awareness uh, and, and uh, that curiosity, that playfulness allows us to really identify and learn quicker and, and meet what's here. So that being said, getting back to your question, um, you know, I, so there's a, a beautiful story, um, that I once heard of a, of a, about a Buddhist monk who, uh, a man came to him right after a, a breakup with his, uh, partner. And this relates to me and my story of life too. And he came to the monk and he's like, I'm devastated. I, I can't function. I can't sleep. I can't eat. I can't, I can't be in life and uh, the monk came and he filled a glass of water and then poured about a a cup of salt into that water and said okay drink this and the man did and he was totally you know overwhelmed by the, the salt and disgusted and said how why would you possibly make me drink a cup of salt it's awful and the monk said follow me and took him down to this pristine lake and filled that same that same glass with this lake water, and then uh, and then poured the water back out just to demonstrate the difference of size, and then put the same cup of salt, same amount of salt into the lake, and then filled the glass back up with the lake water and said, "Drink." And the man drank, and the monk said, "How's the water?" And the man said, it's pristine. It's beautiful. It tastes so fresh. And, you know, one of the things that we can take from that is, okay, it's the same amount of salt. It's just that the container is a different size that allows for that salt to really disperse. And so one of my deep experiences is that in this long journey of becoming more embodied of becoming feeling more of myself is that I've become more dimensional. Like I've, I have a growing container. Like I've, I've shifted from living my life as that cup or that original glass to being more the lake where as things come in, it has space and room to move through as opposed to just a limited capacity and a limited space to for things and and in turn because of that limitation it becomes kind of vile or unpleasant or depressive um Mm. and so you know one of the just i love that analogy because that's been my experience in 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 embodied flow is this process of just becoming more of a dimensional whole feeling the whole dimensional being that i am and just the, the resilience and the capacity for to truly interact with life. And as life is moving with me and through me, that I don't get stuck. And this stuckness is what I've had deeply experienced as suffering or the anti-liberation. 
Yeah, that is a beautiful metaphor and, and it very well illustrates your point. But I think something that's important to mm-hmm. underscore that you already mentioned once before, sure. but I'll say it again, is that to broaden your perspective outside of what you perceive to be your limited container yeah. is, is not a dissociation. It's yeah. more of, would you would you say an integration? Yeah. Yeah, that's a nice way of saying it, is that the... The now, when you say beyond yourself, are you referring to like your perceived self, or are you referring to more like the transpersonal self? I was re- referring more to the in your metaphor, mm-hmm. the the cup, mm-hmm. the cup that concentrates the salt, concentrates concentrates the suffering, so that it's all that you can see. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, those, you know, each time I would say that we have a growth from the cup towards the lake, I would call that an awakening. Because, yeah, Yeah. I think that's a nice way to say that we have constant awakenings, maybe even every day of this expansion of perception of a limited self. And each time we experience and and feel that expansion is an awakening towards our full, true, liberated nature, which is pretty damn expansive, even in our articulated self within that expansion, or even within our own body, you know, to go from, again, that sense of, like, if we were to to tighten everything around us, our organs, our bones, our, our skin... And, and start to slowly, uh, over time, let go of that contraction, we would feel more of that dimensional size that we actually are. Mm. It's just that the tricky thing, and, and this is what I love about stress, is that in that deep contraction, which is sometimes absolutely needed for our survival, part of that survival mechanism is a desensitization. So we don't even know always often how contracted or how uh, much we are in that limited self. It's sometimes only in these awakenings that we go, holy shit, I didn't even know that was holding me back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you can experience that at a very physical level. Like, whoa, I didn't even realize I was tensing up my shoulder blade like for the past two hours. Yeah, totally. It's all the same. I mean, that's the beautiful thing is that, you know, I didn't even know I was holding my breath. I didn't know that I was holding, you know, Mm. my shoulder blade down. I didn't know that I was holding in my relationship. I didn't know that I was, you know, et cetera, et cetera, that I was keeping a separateness from between me and nature, this tree that's outside my window. You know, there are ways there are symptoms of that separation, um, and but we don't always know the, the kind of the root cause of the symptoms. I mean, you know, we talk about mm. symptomology in terms of separation. There are four main channels of that we could talk about separation or connection, and it's you know the channel of connection to oneself, the channel of connection to um, an, another person the channel of connection uh, or separation towards uh, community or culture or race or religion. So it's, it's a little, it's a bigger uh, category than just another individual. And then there's the connection, the channel of connection or separation to nature. 
And, you know, each of these places where we experience connection, or I might say where we experience separation, uh, often lead to isolation and separateness. And we know that, you know, especially what's been coming up is that this is one of the biggest health concerns right now is isolation that leads to depression and anxiety. So it, we don't necessarily, we might say, you know, I might have a patient come in and they'll say, oh, I, I'm feeling really depressed. And one of my ways of working is to go, oh, I wonder, and I don't, you know, this isn't always true, but I wonder if among any of those channels, there's a block in connectivity mm. to themselves, to another person, and, and to the environment, to a culture, to a race, whether that's through microaggression or oppression, um, that they're experiencing a sense of separateness. And the symptomology of that uh, is this sense of isolation or sense of numbness or sense of anxiety, depression that comes as a sort of signaling that's saying, hey, this might not be your true nature. Hmm. And this is the way that your body, that you are communicating that subtle yet profound disconnection. This is very interesting to look at it as the four different possibilities of connection or separateness. Mm -hmm. The one that sticks out to me the most, quite honestly, is the last one, mm -hmm. the, that you could feel a sense of isolation from not being connected to nature. Because totally. if you look at some, someone like, you know, Henry David Thoreau, mm -hmm. who goes off and lives on his own in nature. Yeah. That person has is is a hermit. Yeah. You know, they're not connected to other people. Yeah. But maybe the person who's totally wrapped up in um in urban living and in, in a cityscape is disconnected from nature and they may be experiencing equal or or more, pro more profound isolation from the fourth uh spectrum. Totally. And it might might not just be deprivation of it, because you know, I, I don't know throw personally. But he might have. <laughs> you don't? I don't. No, missed that opportunity. <laughs> but, you know, he might have been simply, and I, I don't think this is true, but um, he could have been just an observer of nature, which is not necessarily the same as feeling interconnected with it. Yeah, yeah, sure. Because there's a lot of, you know, this would be a whole other podcast, but um, there's a lot that goes into the developmental process uh, or the, you know, when we talk about attachment theory or um, certain other developmental components that go into establishing secure connection uh, of relationship. To another person or to any other it's, concept. To me, it's all the same. To consciousness. Yeah, yeah. To consciousness. Uh, to, and, and their derivative or a form of consciousness, which could be nature. It could be uh, another person. It could be ourselves. So... You know, it, it's a deep subject and a, what I'm passionate about, but it, it, it certainly, um, yeah, it, it's a really significant thing. And, you know, when you talk, when you ask me about my Dharma, to me, you know, I, I have a, you know, whether I'm teaching embodied flow or I'm teaching the, the stress training or I'm teaching linguistics, whatever I'm teaching, it to me comes back to um, this Dharma for me, which is 
how am I supporting a process of, of more relationship? Mm. Because that's something I didn't experience, you know, it, as, as a kid, as something growing up, I, you know, part of my obstructions were this process of feeling more isolated and separate from myself, from other people, from the, and I wouldn't say environment. I always felt very connected, um, in that way, or, and even in some ways, a connection to that more, uh, esoteric or the transpersonal, but what was often confusing was this relationship more, uh, that, that same depth of relationship with more myself or with other people. And so it, it's certainly in my own journey of, of uh, re, sort of transforming or transmuting that veil, which it was obstructing it into connection, into the process of connection. Um, I would say that's a, did something that certainly deeply motivates me in my own work. And I think that's very natural, you know, yeah. to, for any teacher to pull and, and learn from his or her own experience from an early age or even current experience. Yeah. What can uh, attendees or, or um, people considering attending the embodied consciousness immersion expect? What is that all about? Sure. Yeah. I um, feel very fortunate to have such an incredible, incredible um, collection of I don't even know, spiritual and, and somatic elders and, uh, and such wisdom. And so the embodied consciousness immersion is an event. It's a six day event in Berkeley, California, this October, um, October 13th through the 18th. And, um, you know, I invited some of my favorite people in the world and most of them said yes, <laughs> to co-create a journey of what it is to, have a first person felt experience of what consciousness is, is to move and to move away from the kind of like a conference format where it's like, you go study with this person and then you have to choose between these people and then you go over there. And then what I really wanted was more of an immersion, which was a, like that all the, the participants stay together as a community and that, that the teachers uh, shift and, and, and also the teachers, all the faculty co-created the curriculum, which is, you know, so there's Bonnie Bainbridge Cohn, who I consider one of the mothers of somatics and embodiment practices. There's Dr. Michael Beckwith, who you might know from his many books or The Secret, Sally Kempton, who um, for her beautiful, beautiful poetic uh, books and, and expertise on um Tantra, non-dual tantric philosophy, Dr. Judith Blackstone in the realization process, Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams and, and uh, Dr. Ray Johnson's both with their incredible work on social activism. And so when, you know, that third, that third channel that I was talking about in terms of, um, you know, the, the community and cultures and, and, and race and where we can feel the connection or disconnection there, both of their work is incredible and in how healing and addressing those wounds or ruptures of relationship between culture and race and religion and sexuality actually also deepen uh, our experience of experiencing embodying consciousness. Um, 
Yes. And then there's uh, Tara Judell, who's my uh, partner and, or co-creator of Embodied Flow. Uh, Dr. Teresa Silo, who is bringing her map of uh, our developmental, literally our developmental process uh, into and in, in coming back into that process of development um, to, to sort of reclaim the, the missed opportunities uh, of where we could have a deeper connection to ourselves. And also the beautiful CC White is um, also offering her satsang, uh, excuse me, her kirtan, um, which is, you know, uh, to me is her map of embodying consciousness. And so the, the collection and the transmission of these people who have all been, almost all of them have been on their, their journey creating maps for, for fellow travelers, uh, journeyers to go through for, you know, most of them for 30, 40 years. And the, the transmission that they have of, of going through these processes themselves are so inspiring. Every time I, I leave uh, the meetings, the, the faculty meetings, I, I kind of weep in, in such joy of, of being able to be in a room with all of these incredible people who have never been in a room together before, which is shocking to me because, you know, in as each of them have their own map, there's a, a collaborative capacity of going how important somatics and embodiment is, the capacity to feel oneself as part of this journey of feeling all that we are beyond just the concept of this limited self. That sounds amazing. And that is quite the lineup. So <laughs> good, good for you for, you know, keeping or for taking on the project of bringing together a, a diverse group of map makers and, yeah. you know, and joining up the factions yeah. in a way, you know, bringing it into a holistic perspective that people can work through together. I think that's beautiful. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's certainly what I appreciate the most is even as you said so beautifully, the, that each of them have their own maps and, and yet they're supportive and in the co-creation of the, the curriculum are looking at how to use their map to also support the, the unveiling of these other maps and also the integration of these maps because the idea is that it's not just hey here's 20 maps go figure your shit out in life it's saying like here are these ways in that have supported me and 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 are really beautiful stunning maps and um and let's find and, and utilize elements of these to help you integrate and and really support your own map or process towards healing and transformation or deep enlivening of yourself. Amazing. I love it. <laughs> I think that your mission behind all of this is, is really cool and inspiring. And um, for any Dharma Talk listener who is interested in attending, where can they find out more information? Sure. It's, um, they can check out uh, embodiedflow.com. Or on my website, uh, Dr. Scott Lyons, drscottlyons.com. And there's videos with each of the faculty, which are incredible in itself. And then information about what you'll get out of it. Um, just this, you know, the 
foundational schedule and, and uh, yeah, all of that information. Great. Well, I think now is the right time to move on to the final section sure. of this interview. And this is what I like to call the prana round. Okay. I'm going to ask you six <laughs> rapid fire questions. Okay. okay. And sure. answer in minimum one word, maximum one sentence. Okay. Wow. This is Sound fun. good. Yeah. <laughs> no pressure. All right. In one. Yeah. No pressure. Am I timed, by the way? Is this like a, a 10 second every, uh, response time to? If, if you pass the time, then the episode gets trapped. <laughs> I like the pressure. Okay. <laughs> Bring it on. <laughs> okay. In one word, why do you practice yoga or somatics? Mm. Uh, freedom. What is your favorite yoga pose and why? Uh, Pinchamayarasana. And it was the first one I could remember. <laughs> the name and i just learned to love it <laughs> how's that for an answer that's a great pose <laughs> it is a great I pose. Love I love pose. Them into my <laughs> what is the single best cue or piece of advice that you've received from a teacher um don't be an asshole <laughs> yeah yeah that's a good it's, one that's good for everyone yeah and uh, it's one of the faculty <laughs> members who told me that when i was 17 so uh, <laughs> They said it a little okay, bit different way, but yeah. <laughs> well, they said it a little bit more gentle. A little bit, just a hair more gentle than that. <laughs> okay, recommend one book, either modern or ancient, for our listeners. Mm, just one? That's cruel. Um, yeah, just one. Okay. Uh, uh, gosh, uh, Wisdom of the Body Moving. Wisdom of the Body Movement. Yeah, Linda okay. Hartley. It's a, it's a book on uh, body-mind centering. That's, that's the first one that came up. Is yoga for everyone? Depends on your definition of yoga. How's that? I'll take that answer. <laughs> I'll take that answer. All right, Scott, last question. How can our audience get in touch with you and how can we support you in your dharma? Oh, um, that's a really sweet question. Uh, well, you can always get a hold of me on um, uh, my website, drscottlyons.com, or it's the same for Instagram uh, at drscottlyons. Those are two ways to get a hold of me, or you know, come stalk me, find me, come to a training. <laughs> Those are always good ways to connect. Um, mm -hmm. And wow, I, it's such a beautiful question to ask someone how other people can support their dharma. I, I think. In in just um, I think in in what feels right to say is in, as people get an opportunity to support others in their dharma, I feel really uh, supported by that. Great, yeah, wonderful. Well, it's been a blast talking to you yeah. about somatics and embodiment. Uh, nice to connect with you, yeah. too. Our first conversation was right into the podcast. So <laughs> thanks for being there for that. Thank you. And, uh, and have a wonderful rest of your day. You too. Thank you so much. Take care. Hey, Dharma Talk community. If you enjoyed this podcast and you haven't done so already, please hit the subscribe button right now. And if you'd like to show your support even more, leave me an honest review on iTunes or whatever podcast directory you listen on. You can also make a financial contribution to keep the show up and running, a donation at henrywins.com. 
And remember, I'm here to serve you. So if you have any questions or comments or ideas, you can always reach me on Instagram at Henry Wins. Otherwise, I'll speak to you next week. Keep living your dharma.